Much has been said about the September 11th attacks on the United States. Our guest today has written a book about that event, or more exactly, what key events preceded it. In our opinion, the work should be read by anyone interested in that remarkable day. That is to say, it's a book which should be read by everyone. Embarrassing facts surrounding the 9-11 attacks were downplayed, overlooked, or sometimes ignored completely by official reports, and unfortunately, by the vast majority of the reporting on the topic as well. In The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, Peter Dale Scott, longtime investigator of what he aptly calls deep politics, has continued to do what he's done so well for decades, examine the big picture of what produced an event. The threads which wove themselves in the tapestry of September 11th are certainly worth teasing apart, and we're pleased to attempt just that with Dr. Peter Dale Scott. Dr. Scott, welcome to Radio Parallax. I'm glad to be with you. Dr. Scott, far more than the typical investigative reporter, you examine what lies below the surface of events noting in the road to 9-11 that you sought to examine how, quote, it's a story that looks beyond the well-defined public entities of open politics to include the more amorphous and fluid realm of private control behind them. Can we start off by discussing how you define the deep state and the security state? Right, and as opposed to the public state. Yes. Normally when Americans talk about the state, they, they're thinking of what they were taught about in civics courses in high school, what's uh, ultimately dependent on the Constitution and a system of checks and balances. That's a system that has lasted now for, uh, you know, two centuries. Uh, it's, it's a good system, but there have been some very significant changes since World War II and the emergence of what I call a deep state that is really not part of that system at all. The way to visualize it, to think of the CIA, which was uh, was set up by a statute, but the statute says almost nothing about it, required to uh, perform, according to the National Security Act of 1947, such other duties as the National Security Council may from time to time direct. Well, there are no checks and balances here. And uh, not only do, does it not report in this regular way, but it was set up precisely not to be accountable, not to report. And uh, that's the characteristic of what I call the deep state. Now, that doesn't mean that it's totally autonomous doing what it likes somewhere else. Uh, the way it was set up in 1947 uh, really, most of the planning for it came from Wall Street and from men like Alan Dulles. Truman, the, the president, was a Democrat. Alan Dulles was a Republican and a private lawyer in Sullivan and Cromwell. But he had a lot more to do with the formation of the CIA than did uh, Harry Truman. And I regard that as really emblematic of the uh, situation of the deep state that is responsive to what I call an overworld of private interests, uh, Wall Street, lawyers, bankers. Their influence was very, very clear in the CIA when it was set up. Not quite so clear now, but then Wall Street is not quite as powerful now as it was then. Power has gone to other parts of the country as well, Texas, California. Uh, so that's the deep state. Now, in between, you asked about the security state. I say very little about the security state in my book. 
But if you were to go to Europe or some other countries, the security state would be more powerful because there you have, and, and we do have in America, uh, armies, a military that has, in a sense, its own constituency, uh, particularly in southern states like Georgia and Alabama, where it represents a significant part of the local economy. Uh, so the, the very clear distinction between the public state that is... Uh, is popularly it's grounded ultimately in the decisions of the people, and the deep state that is responsible upwards uh, to the overworld. In between is the security state, and uh, maybe later on we'll say more about it because uh, Bush and Cheney since 2001 have done a lot to in in ways that have not been noticed to increase the power of the military in the domestic United States. I mean, it's very important, for example, they've created a NORTHCOM, uh, which is a command area for, for the continental United States. This is absolutely new. Before that, our commands like CENTCOM was for the Middle East and SOUTHCOM was for Latin America. And now North America has been added to this global reach of the, of the military. So that, that's important too, though, as I say, I say less about that in my book. Let's take a deep plunge here into, into this, this area of politics. There's been speculation that the Bush administration allowed the 9-11 attacks to go forward in order to galvanize the nation in what's now a famous phrase, like a new Pearl Harbor, according to the, the Project for the New American Century. Um, in your book, you're careful not to speculate on, on a lot of matters, but I think it's worth taking a look at some events that have shown how shadowy moves by intelligence figures have included some really some surprisingly bloody strategies. So I'd like to talk a little bit about which you mentioned in the book, the strategy of tension that took place in Italy with bombings falsely being linked to left-wing groups, as well as the U.S.'s Operation Northwoods in the 1960s. Well, yes, uh, the, the strategy of tension is a term which uh, emerged in Europe in the... Uh, it was counterinsurgency, counterterrorism theory in Europe uh, with people with whom uh, the CIA was in touch and specifically the uh, the bombings you're talking about, there were two huge ones. One was in Milan, 1969, the Piazza Fontana bombing, and the second one was the Bologna Railway Station, 1980. I think more than 80 people were killed in the second one. Both were blamed on leftist groups, and the, the we have to understand that leftist groups were in fact involved. That that's the importance of the analogy with 9/11, because I certainly believe that uh, Al Qaeda was involved. But in the the Italian case, uh, these leftist groups had been penetrated by agents of the Italian security agency, and they used uh, arms and um, resources that. Uh, way, way back had been set up by the Americans in a program called Gladio when America rightly, I think, feared that the Soviet Union might sweep over Western Europe. They created what they called stay-behind units in virtually every country on the continent, including Turkey. These units uh, had been created way back in the early 50s, but as time went on, they evolved into something different from the original plan. They became a kind of parallel government, which was 
planning for to commit crimes against the regular government in order to create in the public uh, a fear of ordinary open democracy and a desire to move to a more dictatorial state of affairs. The extent to which Americans were involved in this planning is, uh, is very debated. A lot of Italian generals were ultimately convicted for their role in these bombings. And time after time, they would blame the CIA. Well, of course, they had a motive to blame the CIA. The message I learned from that is how dangerous it is to set up little deep state units with, that are not accountable to anybody because they can go off and have a life of their own. Then you asked about Northwoods. I should mention first that one of the people involved in this strategy of tension planning in Italy came to America in 1961 and gave a series of lectures in Annapolis about coup planning in Europe. And uh, then shortly after that, we got from the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962 a plan called Northwoods, which was remarkably similar to what they were planning at the same time in Italy, which was they were trying to think how they could create uh, public support in America for an attack on Cuba. And they came up with the brilliant idea, well, we could blow up some Americans and blame it on Cuba. I mean, Northwoods was quite a lengthy, articulated plan, and it's on the web if anyone wants to look at it. People should do that because it just seemed, it seems like something out of, out of like fiction, but yet there was actually a plan to hijack an airliner yes, and, and kill people and blame it on the Cubans falsely. And you can, you can see the documents on the web, and I give the, the URL, the place to find it in my book in a footnote when I'm talking about Northwoods. People should re- read this to realize that sneaky plots from within this deep state against the government are not unique to the rest of the world. They have happened, at least the planning for them has happened in America. Now, that was back in the 1960s. But uh, as I'm trying to show in my book, there has been continuous planning from units parallel to the government, uh, planning done by people who were not part of the regular government for uh, quite radical changes in this country. And that certainly will surface again here as we get closer to talking about 9-11 and al-Qaeda and who they're mixed up with. But the road to 9-11 is actually filled with quite a few remarkable facts that were I found very uh, eyebrow-raising. One in particular, the Reagan administration instituted its own office of public diplomacy staffed by perception management, in quotes, experts from the CIA and special forces. Their goal was to plant anti-communist propaganda in the American press. Yes, this, now by the you know, when I talked about the... Uh, being very few controls on the CIA. One of the controls there was was that they were never to conduct any operations in this country. Uh, what happened under Reagan was that people were seconded out of the CIA, put into this unit which was technically in the State Department, and yes, they were, uh, they, they were generating propaganda directed at the American people. And if I could say a bit more about it, uh, it's not in my book, but it's relevant, that particularly they, uh, were say, they were doing this targeting districts where Democrats 
had been elected who were opposed to the Contra program. So they were trying to save the Contra program by defeating Democrats with government money. And I know a lot about this because when all this was being exposed, I was working in Washington uh, with a group advising Senator Kerry and his investigation of Contras and drugs. And I, I actually interviewed two people from one of these agencies who had a contract. And there was a lawyer in the room, and every time they said, we're going to target so-and-so, and the lawyer would say, please don't say target. Uh, <laughs> we had the transcripts of these meetings. Wow. People speculate whether this goes on, uh, and it, it, it absolutely does. Yes. Mm-hmm. The book is The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America. We're speaking with author Peter Dale Scott. You had a chapter about the decline of the public state, uh, where you showed the difference, difference between the public state and security state is really well illustrated by Henry Kissinger. He was, uh, he was directing Pentagon policy uh, back in the, in the 1970s, influenced by private concerns, and he was basically overriding the Secretary of Defense, the ostensible chief of the department. Kissinger was actually personally in charge of where the U.S. was directing bombing raids. Yes, in, in the case of Cambodia, very much so. I think the, the, the really telling story there is when uh, uh, Nixon and Kissinger went to Iran, and they had State Department advisors and Pentagon advisors. And against the advice of both, from both sides, they made a deal for a, selling $2 billion worth of arms to the Shah of Iran, uh, which they thought was very clever from an American point of view because the price of oil had just quadrupled. And uh, the Shah had all these dollars that he didn't know what to do with. So it would be a big boost to the American arms industry. It was, in fact, a very stupid decision because it created so much inflation in Iran when all the Americans had to come to, you know, in, install the, the infrastructure for these new weapons. Uh, it created intolerable inflation, and within seven years, uh, the, the Shah was out of power. So just, I mean, maybe, maybe from one point of view, that was a good thing, but it was certainly not what Kissinger and Nixon intended. It was a stupid policy. It was opposed by the Pentagon. It was opposed by the State Department. And they were there, the advisors, but they didn't know until afterwards that the decision had been made. Now, that's the deep state at work. Let's stay in the 1970s. Uh, an anti-Henry Kissinger neocon coalition emerged. You document this in the book. It, uh, it marked a move to the right, away from the power of Wall Street and the Council on Foreign Relations towards a more hawkish group, which was titled Team B. It set out to re-examine the intelligence data. Uh, it was criticized then for its, its hawkish posture, and it, but it does remind people, I think, of, of, or should, of the cherry-picking of data that took place when, before the U.S. attack on Iraq. Can you talk a bit about Team B and how they're still with us? Well, Team B, technically, uh, we, there's both a metaphorical Team B and a, and a literal Team B. The literal Team B, in, in the 1970s, after, as the Vietnam War wound down, there was a lot of pressure from what we call the traders in Wall Street, the people interested in saving the dollar and having commerce with the rest of the world. These people wanted to see the defense budget reduced. And Jimmy Carter actually ran and won an election on, with the promise to reduce the defense budget. There were other people, some of them also from Wall Street, but most of them essentially what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, 
who felt that the best way to save the American economy was to increase the defense budget. This was very hotly contested. And what became crucial was the assessment of the CIA about the Soviet threat. And the CIA was saying, you know, it's, it's not all that bad. It's something we can live with, and therefore we can have detente. Well, Cheney and Rumsfeld, back in 1975, had a big role in reversing this because Ford was the president, and most people, you know, they remember the Nixon presidency as very powerful. Some of the most important decisions governing us today were actually made in the very brief Ford presidency in 1975 when Donald Rumsfeld was Ford's chief of staff, and Cheney, 33 years old, I think, was his uh, assistant. And uh, they arranged this uh, so-called Halloween massacre. A total of nine people changed their jobs. A crucial one here was that William Colby was fired as the head of the CIA and George H.W. Bush was brought in from outside to be the new head of CIA. And practically the first thing that George H.W. did was to bring in a new team to assess the Soviet threat. This was something which Colby had been asked to do and had refused to do because he trusted the, the professional advice. So these known hawks were brought in from outside and said, no, 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 the Soviets are much more dangerous than we thought. That stuck, that overrode the professional advice. One estimate is, I think, that we spent $3 trillion on armaments since then unnecessarily because of what was essentially a fake assessment, which was incorporated into Jimmy Carter's uh, national security planning. So Carter ended up, though he'd been elected to reduce the budget, huge budget increases, which we think of as the Reagan increases, were actually initiated under Jimmy Carter. I think it's important and stress that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight looking back, that uh, their data does not stand up, and it does appear that Carter and, and, the, and the nation was sold a bill of goods. The Soviet Union was already entering into acute economic crisis, which no attention was paid for, and we be, became so skewed that the, the CIA eventually, its whole Soviet team having been reshaped by the, these events, uh, didn't know that the Soviet Union was about to collapse, even though many people in Western Europe did know. Well, we're at the Carter administration. Everyone knows the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and most people know that Osama bin Laden later got involved with the war there. But um, something in your book that I found startling, I absolutely did not know, was that, that Zbigniew Brzezinski and Robert Gates were promoting the secret funding of Islamic militants in Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion, hoping to promote such an invasion. Yes, and Brzezinski actually boasted about this in the 1990s to a French newspaper when he got Carter to approve this program. He warned President Carter that it could induce the Soviets to invade Afghanistan. And the French uh, man, uh, journalist in, in, uh, who was interviewing Brzezinski said, well, don't you regret what you did? And Brzezinski said that back in the 90s. He said, what's more important, the collapse of the Soviet Union or a few angry Muslims? Well, our enemy now is precisely the few angry Muslims that he brushed aside as not being important. 
you raised the question, who would have been a better foe, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev or Osama bin Laden? Yes. Uh, One of the things that uh, I could have stressed a bit more in the book is that once Gorbachev had taken over, and particularly after Reagan, like Maggie Thatcher in Britain, recognized that Gorbachev was someone you could deal with, then the CIA should have laid off a whole range of tactics they had to weaken and to destroy the, the Soviet leadership, but they didn't. They went in for the kill. They, um, this is a huge topic, but this is, again, the deep state, public state problem. All the way through, there were advisors in the State Department and other parts of government who said that we should be negotiating with the Soviets, not pinning them to the wall in Afghanistan, and there, William Casey, who was the head of the CIA at the time until he died in 1987, these people absolutely insisted that it was more important to make the Soviets bleed, to, make, to cause them pain, than to negotiate with them. And I mention that here because it's a little bit the situation we have now in the Middle East. The, again, the State Department is saying we shouldn't be negotiating with the Palestinians, maybe even with Hamas. And uh, we've got these people who say, no, we've got, uh, we can't negotiate. And uh, I, I very f- much fear that the result of this will be another U.S. tragic involvement, this time in Iran, which would be uh, so many people, including Brzezinski, see clearly would be in the long run absolutely disastrous for the American posture in the world. We've been speaking with author Peter Dale Scott about his book, The Road to 9-11. We will continue this discussion on next week's program. Right now, we need to take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.